Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. I'm your host, Troy McClung. And normally at this point, this is when I'd say I'm really excited to have my guest on tonight. Uh, But this time, I'm not that excited. Uh, This time, the guest is actually going to be me. Now, it sounds a little self-serving, and I guess maybe to some degree it is. But I've had several people ask, hey, Troy, um, your host, would you mind just kind of giving us a little details of where you're coming from? Uh, we want to understand what's going on. I, the whole point in doing the podcast, of course, wasn't to make it about my setup and my experience and, and what's going on at Red Tool House, but I understand there's some, I guess maybe there's some credibility that needs to be established or maybe just, just a point of reference. Uh, every once in a while, I'll, yeah, I drop a little a bit of nuggets of what's going on at our place and our updates, but um, not not really getting into details. Maybe it's best to do some uh, some background there, and just just to explain that I you know I this is the disclaimer. I am by no means an expert in pastured piggery. Uh, I consider myself a a new uh, you know learning new experiences all the time. Uh, you know we've been raising hogs for I guess going on seven years now. Um, so it's one of those things where I say, hey, I, I, I have some base knowledge, but there's a whole lot more I want to learn. And I think it's fair, since we've done all these interviews and just telling about different experiences, that I just share my experience. So a little different for me. I don't normally sit here and stare at a computer monitor and go over my own notes and and uh, orate that into a mic. So uh, in, instead of trying to go back and edit out mistakes or flubs, I'm just going to plow through it because... Um, that's just what I want to do. I really don't like going back and editing a bunch of, uh, of stuff when it comes to audio, and especially when it's me making stupid mistakes, because to me, it, it all sounds stupid when I hear myself talk. You know how that goes. But uh, so what I'm going to do is I, I'm not going to do something as cliche as actually ask myself my own questions, but I am using that uh, list of questions as a, a, a process to go through, and, and hopefully I hit all the points that matter. And just kind of do a little background, a little history of, of Red Tool House Farm, uh, where we are with our pigs, what we've done in the past, and where we're headed. Um, again, I know I've teased that a little bit, that we're making some some pretty good wholesale changes at Red Tool House when it comes to a pastured pig farm. I also uh, have still a little bit of a head cold, so I'm going to try to keep from coughing into the mic. Uh, we'll, we'll avert, I'll avert my, uh, my face when it comes to that, uh, so just bear with me. I thought I'd be done with it by now, but nope. It's still around. Great New Year's gift I've been rocking here for a couple of weeks now. Okay, so let's dive right in. So uh, who am I and uh, what about the farm? Well, the farm is called Red Tool House Farm or Red Tool House Homestead. We kind of use those back and forth. Actually, if you want to get technical, it's Red Tool House Lumber Company and Farm is how I originally started the business many moons ago. And I'm not going to go back and give all that detail, but just uh, the lumber company element was uh, tied to the fact that I had a small sawmill, a bandsaw mill at the time in the early 2000s, milling my own lumber, uh, had a wood shop, 
turning that into uh, uh, wood products, uh, furniture, those type of things. So in my mind, it was kind of fun to call it Lumber Company and Farm. Now, what's funny, when I went to the state to actually register the business, and I told them it's Red Tool House Lumber Company and Farm, they're like, oh, so you're in the timber industry, so here's a boatload of paperwork you have to do and here's you know we need to check your workers comp and you do this 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 and this and i was like oh wait a minute wait a minute i'm not really a lumber company like but it says so in your name it's like well that's just kind of a play on words I, i'm a guy with a little sawmill just kind of milling stuff here and there and turning it into furniture and they're like oh well you're not really a lumber company then so it says it in the name but it's not in the registration deeded from virginia in 1863 and actually became its own state so sometimes you'll hear uh, when someone says they're from West Virginia and you ask them a question, oh, my cousin lives just outside of Richmond, and uh, that person looks at you like you're an idiot. That's just the way West Virginians are. We're a little sensitive to the fact that, no, we've actually been, a, been our own state for quite a while now. So yeah, don't make a Virginia reference when you're talking about West Virginia. And not to get political, but with all the fun stuff going in in Virginia about Second Amendment, people are thinking, oh, wow, you guys got all kinds of crazy stuff to deal with when it comes to guns and all that type of stuff. No, different state, whole different issue. So anyway, uh, wow, get down off your soapbox, Troy. So there's, (laughs) so Southern West Virginia, um, just... um, just a commuting distance from our capital of our of our state, if that makes any sense. So in a major metro area, but still very, very rural. So the the name, uh, the reason why we have the name Red Toolhouse is our area was gas country, natural gas country. There was tons and tons of natural gas production in the area. On the back corner of my farm at the you know we're we're very rough terrain, so that what we call the top ridge, the back ridge used to sit the red tool house that housed all the tools uh, for the local gas company guys to come do uh, well maintenance, to do pipeline work, all that type of stuff. So that tool house actually sat at the top of the ridge and it was red. So that actually you know, was, was picked up uh, decades ago and that's just how people referred to that. Oh, you just go out to the road to the red tool house. So you go out red tool house road. And uh, so we just, we thought that was neat. It was unique. Um, from my marketing experience, I thought, well, okay, that's 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 something unique. We can we can maybe grab that and run with it. So that's why we have the name Red Toolhouse. Nothing uh, any more um, clever than that. So as I mentioned, in southern West Virginia, our topography, uh, you know, we're technically the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. If you go east in our state, you get into the taller elevations. You get in the more defined mountains uh, that have these these nice long mountain ridges. And then these wide valleys, um, you think of uh, Polyface Farm over in the Shenandoah Valley, you think of things like that where these beautiful green valleys with these tall mountains on either side. That's not us. Um, I always joke, if you, if you wanted to try to figure out the topography of West Virginia where we are, take a piece of paper and just wad that paper up into a ball. Just crumple it up in a huge ball and then straighten it back out. Try to flatten it out the best you can. And that's the topo map of where we live in West Virginia. There's there's really no rhyme or reason. It, it really is just a series of wrinkles. So we have 100 acres, and that 100 acres is basically a valley. So if you imagine uh, a, a stream that runs through the dead center of the property, uh, the property is longer than it is wide. So it's a stream that runs through the center of it. And on either side of the stream, of course, you have the hills going up. 
And in West Virginia, we have what we call benches. So instead of just being a, a um, incline at a specific angle that goes up to the top of the ridge or the top of the mountain, we have these benches. So it's almost like these natural terraces. Some can be you know, 30, 40, 50 feet wide. Some are even bigger. And some are just you know, wide enough that you could drive a four-wheeler or a small tractor around. So the 100 acres that, that we purchased was a farm at one point. It was, it was kind of abandoned. And actually say, you know, you know, here we took over a farm that was abandoned for years. When we bought the land in 2000, it was absolutely gutted. There was an old farmhouse that was in total disrepair. Side of it was missing. Um, a lot of garbage. You could t- kind of tell that the neighborhood had decided to use it for the public dump for a couple years. So it just brought their you know, household garbage. Um, it was my understanding at one time somebody tried to run a small wrecker service out of there. So there were car parts, there were cars, uh, tons of tires, 200 and some tires we took off. So we spent the first two years cleaning up the property and by cleaning, literally hauling garbage. Uh, those semi-sized rollback dumpsters that come in, I can't even comprehend how much money I spent. No one even think about how much money I spent and having those full uh, hauled off to the landfill. So a lot of work put into that. Um, you know, trying to see the diamond in the rough. Um, it, it was all forested. Out of the 100 acres, yeah, we probably had 95 acres that was true Appalachian hardwood forest. So we did a very selective timbering process uh, there to help generate income, of course, to buy the, you know, to cover the cost of the land. And it, it worked out pretty well for us. And I'm not going to get into detail of that. Um, um, yeah, there's there's other ways that you can find information about how we purchased our land on YouTube, but um, so you just imagine this um, this valley. I always say it looks like a tube sock, or a, if you take a take an old athletic sock and lay it down, it's kind of got a dog leg right to it, or he's got a little bend in it. That's kind of what it looks like. But then lift the edges up and and have the stream running through the middle of it. So it's a it's a valley. It's a hundred acres, most of it forested. I joke when you know when people say, "Oh, 100 acres! Wow, man, you you must love having 100 acres." Yeah, it's really nice, but there's only one place on the entire property that I can turn my truck and trailer around. Yeah, it's just, it's just not, it's just not flat. If it was flat 100 acres, then oh my goodness, you imagine what we could do with it. But that's what we have. That's what we've chosen, and you know, you dance with who brought you, right? So what are we doing there when it comes to uh, pastured pigs? Well, back in 2013, we decided we wanted to uh, to try to raise our own pigs. We'd already been playing around in what we call the homesteading world, uh, raising chickens, trying to do a garden, learning more about where our food comes from. You know, the typical thing. It's, it's nothing new. You watch a documentary on Netflix, and you're like, oh, I've got to change my whole lifestyle. So, uh, but I'd always grown up rural, always grown up playing in the woods, that type of stuff. So that none of that stuff really scared me. Uh, and I like the idea of being more self-reliant. I was kind of leaning more towards loner prepper type of thing. And my wife was more of nutrition. The kids were born, you know, the kids were new. Um, so it was, you know, nutrition, you t- you're trying to raise our kids the best way possible, giving them the best fuel for their bodies, all that type of stuff. So we, we, we kind of came together. It's like, okay, this makes sense. Let's, let's try this. So ironically, the thing that got me interested in pigs first, you know, we had chickens and instead of looking at other ruminants or looking at other animals like ruminants, instead of pigs, um, was uh, there was a podcast we used to listen to all the time. It was Chicken Thistle Farm podcast. And uh, some of you guys may be familiar with that podcast. Um, uh, they're no longer podcasting, in fact, but there is some rumor that Andy may be, may be coming back. 
but they uh, would, would kind of document their endeavors with raising pigs on pasture and some of the other things they had going on. And like, wow, okay, these, these guys, this, this husband and wife really make this sound doable. Now they had some, you know, they had some challenges and things like that. But to me, it was like, wow, okay, th- this sounds exciting. It sounds like it's something that would work on our land. I don't have all this open pasture that I could go out and get a couple head of cattle and not be feeding hay, you know, nine, ten months out of the year. Uh, the pigs can go through the forest. You know, we can we can feed. We can do those type of things. You know, we we can we can do this, and I can afford the fencing. Fencing to me seemed to be a lot cheaper for pigs than it would be to say, you know, going out for something for a big goat area or you know, big you know, multiple cattle pastures with with you know, high tensile wire and all that type of stuff. So that that first got my attention and and, and drew me to pigs. And big fan of bacon. Um, this is why, if you, if you see my YouTube channel, you can tell Troy doesn't shy away from the bacon. In 2013, uh, it's just one of those things. What do you do when you decide to get into pigs? Well, naturally, you open up the ad bulletin or, you know, I guess now it would be Facebook Marketplace. You just go anywhere you can find any general listings and you find the first person that has pigs to sell. And you buy those pigs and bring them home. Uh, that's obviously not what I'm recommending, but that's what we did. I found a farm that was about an hour away. The guy had some pigs, didn't know anything about them. Um, I knew they oinked and they had four legs and they were still moving when I went to get them. So that was really all I was looking for. And, uh, so show up, I buy three, um, piglets just at we- yeah, just at weaning age. So three gilts, uh, going back and look at him, two of them were, were, primarily Hampshire. Yeah, they were the uh, white belted Hampshire. And then one was uh you know blue butt land race kind of thing going on there. Uh but a longer pig, you know, floppy eared, you know, white whitish pink pig. Um brought the three of them home, I actually brought them home in an in a dog crate in the back of my wife's uh Xterra and my goodness that hour drive all the way home that's between the squealing and the projectile um uh, defecation in the back of the, the back of the car she was really impressed with pigs um, so fast forward you know, we raised those three the whole the whole gimmick there was the or the idea there was to to see if I could raise three animals without killing them I raised uh, those three with the idea that one we are going to process for consumption that following year for ourselves and the other two we would breed and then try to create a you know a breed line there and again, looking back in, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, you know, there you go. Just getting garbage genetics and, and are you really going to be able to, to fix and have something great there? But, you know, we, we pushed on and, and actually had some successful litters. Um, but, you know, seeing now that that's something that we wanted to change in the future. So uh, we, you know, we go through this first year, raise our pigs, uh, everything works fine. Uh, we, we go to do the AI on the two that we kept and uh, we named those two. So that was Abigail and Molly. So Abigail and Molly, uh, Molly uh, was the land race blue butt pig and Abigail was um, one of the Hampshire. We kind of said, we're having a beauty contest. The one that looks like it has the best confirmation is the one that stays to breed. The other one goes to the processor. So uh, one lost out. So it came time to breed. And, and instead of, at that time, listening to Chicken Thistle uh, Farm, they were always AI. And I really like the idea of AI. I like the control over it. Um, yeah, they made it sound very easy to do. So that was the route I wanted to go. I didn't want to mess with a boar. I didn't, there was all kinds of reasoning behind that, a justification in my mind. 
you know, didn't want to have to feed an extra mouth, didn't have to worry about keeping them separate, didn't want to worry about piglets when I didn't want piglets. I could mark heat cycle. I should know exactly when they're going to farrow. Ha ha, funny story there. Um, all those type of things. So we went with the AI, AI route. I was getting my um, uh, semen from Shipley's. Um, they were handling it really well. Cost was great, all those type of things. And we were successful. So the first breeding of Abigail and the first breeding of Molly, I had uh, two perfect litters, literally. Uh, so Abigail, she threw 10 piglets, not a single loss, not a single crush. Uh, so 10 solid viable piglets that we finished. Um, Mercy farrowed uh, about 15 hours later and she had 12, I, you know, her pigs looked exactly like her, identical, it was hilarious, because I actually bred them with Duroc and, uh, from Shipley's, and uh, so the, the pigs from the Hampshire, from Abigail, you know, they came out different colors, they were still belted, but they came out with different colors, um, you had some Duroc influence there, definitely, but man, the, the Landrace Blue Butt mix, Molly, uh, all 12 of her pigs came out just looking exactly like her, flop-eared, you know, white, pink, whatever color you want to call that, and identical, not a spot on them anywhere. So, you know, in, in my mind, I'm thinking, huh, this, uh, this pig raising thing, this is easy. So, you know, didn't have any crush, didn't have any stillborn, nothing. So, you know, we go from two pigs to then having, you know, 22 plus the, the two females, the two sows on, on farm. I'm like, wow, this is great. So at that point, I immediately get into pork sales. And I was you know, thinking that was the direction I wanted to go, wanted to sell uh, you know, obviously wanted to have unlimited supply of pork here on the farm, but also wanted to provide cuts for my friends. And that's when I started, you know, obviously taking deposits on holes and halves of, of the pigs, not really getting into cuts at that time, just, uh, dealing with holes and holes and halves. So, uh, that worked out well. And again, I'm not going to go through the whole life story there. We just kind of got in a cycle of doing that a couple years later, decided to, um, maybe the next year decided to, uh, do ha or do um, uh, cuts, providing cuts of individual uh, cuts of the pork. So you're trying to figure out that balance. You know the, the cash flow associated with uh, instant cash flow from selling a whole and a half and, and needing only a small amount of customers to the value added uh, retail costs or, or benefits of selling cuts. But then cash flow when it came to uh, production costs and, and processing costs that I would have to absorb, and then multiple customers, more customers needed to be able to sell that product. And that's a, you know, that's a discussion actually for another whole podcast that we'll probably get into at some point, uh, weighing the benefits of holes and halves versus cuts when it comes to cash flow and sales. So, uh, really just turned, turned out well for us. Um, I would always sell out, uh, obviously, you know, bacon was a no brainer. In fact, I just kept raising the price of my bacon, got to where I was about $8 and 50 cents a pound on bacon. Um, just, just had a good customer base. Um, you know, and, and to, to kind of dovetail into this, so um, yeah, question that I obviously ask all my guests, well, are, you know, are you doing this by yourself? Are you doing it on the fly uh, as a primary income or do you have an all-farm job? Uh, well, at Red Toolhouse, the, the way it works is Kelly is, uh, she retired when our uh, first son was born. Uh, she decided she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. She was actually an accountant and did quite well at that profession, but she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. So in 2002, she officially hung up her uh, employment hat uh, and went uh, went to what I consider a harder job of uh, staying home and taking care of the kids and homeschooling. Um, so 
that uh, first child is now 18, finishing up his high school year of homeschooling. Uh, we have two boys. So the four of us, uh, Kelly and me and the two boys, we obviously are, are the farmhands. They they help out, uh, but, but the pig maintenance, pig chores are primarily my responsibility. I have an all-farm job. I am self-employed. I own a marketing company. So um, that obviously helps me do some of the things. Obviously, the reason why I'm talking right now into a microphone and all this equipment is because it's part of my marketing company. It, it's not like I had to go out and buy all this stuff specifically to start a podcast. So there's some overlap there. And of course, being self-employed allows me to uh, to have that freedom to, uh, okay, I'm not working at the office today. I'm going to work on the farm or vice versa. Uh, I'm not messing with a farm today. I'm going to the office. So there's a balance there. You know, a day job, obviously, uh, the day job still funds the farm. The, fun, the farm is not uh, one is, is not completely self self supporting. Uh, the day job, of course, provided all the infrastructure. You know, if we look at pork sales covering the feed costs and covering some of the pig related infrastructure, then yeah, it, it could be profitable. Uh, it hasn't been the last year uh, just because of issues we've had with uh, farrowing. But um, at that time, when I'm you know when I'm selling you know, fifteen to twenty two hogs. The income from that definitely covered the uh, feed costs, the labor costs, uh, the equipment costs, and the fencing, those type of things. So that worked out well. It became profitable for us. And of course, the day job um, gave me the experience and the ability to, to market my product, establish a customer base, so I could sell said product. Alongside of the day job of the marketing company and of course the farm, it, we decided to start a YouTube channel several years ago. Honestly, the, the the motivation to starting the channel was I wanted a visual for my customers to be able to see, hey, if I'm going to buy pork from Troy or eggs or chicken, because that, you know, we do multiple things there, then I want them to be able to see how I raise things on the farm. I want them to see the farm. If they can't come out and walk around on it, at least they can go see these videos. So it's a trust factor that, that I was trying to build. Well, that was the primary focus. The channel took off. It, it, it got some traction. And so now it's kind of become its own little entity. So looking at it from a business perspective, uh, the, the, the farm produces uh, uh, farm products, uh, chicken, eggs, pork, and has its own little you know, business sector there that we, we manage uh, profit and loss through there. The YouTube channel now has its own sector that manages profit and loss. So we see the income that comes from there and, of course, the all-farm day job. So there's there's um, three primary income streams for Red Toolhouse um, family. And um, yeah, we, we have uh, smaller conduits of income that, that fall under those three areas. But that's that's kind of what we're doing. That's That's how we have structured our setup. So as I mentioned, going back to our pigs, so um, over the last seven years, we've just kept breeding those lines. So Abigail and Molly, Molly re-retired. Her daughter, Mercy, we bred her for a while. She had some good uh, litters. Then we kept her daughter, uh, who was Matilda. And Matilda actually, she, uh, she only farrowed once and had a total loss. She went early and she passed what looked like a plate of lasagna. It was, it was a mess. And um, so we retired her. Abigail, she produced a, um, a, a you know, several good litters. Uh, she had a, a, a one uh, goodness. She had uh, one of her piglets uh, we kept as a gilt and bred her. Her name was Meredith. She did really well. She had some great litters, 
And uh, so we kept her around. In fact, she is still, as of this date, is still standing on the farm, right? At least, you know, she was this morning, uh, standing on the farm. She had a daughter who we, we called Hoss, who just had an incredible confirmation. This pig was an absolute tank. But um, I kept her around just because of her confirmation. But she had um, she had a very sporadic heat cycle. Could not figure it out. Uh, at times she would she would come into heat but never stand. And so I was really going to give up with on her. In fact, it was was ready to to send her to processing. I just happened to be breeding uh, my other two. I was trying to yeah, keeping four breeding styles was my game plan and 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 rotate breed two one time breed two the next time kind of back and forth. And uh, so I'm, I'm there with my uh, Shipley supply. I'm breeding the two that I want and look over and and here's Hoss standing there in incredible stand. I mean just locked up. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, "Wow, okay. Well, I you know, I'm going to I'm going to take some of this product and I'm going to try to breed her cuz I want to see if she's going to be worth keeping or not." Well, she bred, she settled, um had a horrible fairway and she was uh, and we actually did a video about this. Uh, she was my first major loss on the farm. You know, and some of those litters after the first ones, we had you know some crushing, we had some stillborn. You know, so it wasn't like I was doing perfect litters um, the entire time. But Hoss just had some concerns there that uh, she had a really violent farrowing. Um, actually, I had to go in and pull pigs, and she just never recovered from that. She never was able to get back up from that, and uh, so you know, you, she she passed. There was a, there was obviously a, a death issue there. Um, three of her piglets survived. We bottle fed those and donated them to uh, a local uh, nonprofit that we've been helping um, get their agricultural thing there, addiction recovery, homeless shelter type thing. Uh, they have a lot of land, so we're helping them get established there. So we donated those pigs once we uh, weaned them from the bottle. That's a whole different story. But uh, so kind of discovering things are showing up in my genetic line that, okay, there's there's some issues here. The, the Shipley's semen that I'm getting, these good quality boards are just not overcoming some of the genetic uh, issues that I had. Now, um, there's also, it wasn't just genetics, of course. There's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be more than happy to take the blame. There's, there's farmer blame when it came to conditions and yeah, fairwing conditions and those type of things. Um, you know, looking back in hindsight, my pigs were definitely overweight. Uh, the ones that had fairwing issues, uh, there's just in Appalachian forest. There's just so much forage, man, and it's just it just blows my mind. And you know, you look at a pig every day, and if you don't start taking notes and, and these type of things, you you don't realize how big these pigs get. And they just keep putting on, putting on, putting on until you go back and you look at old pictures. You go back and look at some of your data and you're like, oh, my goodness, this this pig is huge. And when I had successful fairwings, they were a lot lighter in weight, you know, a lot less fat on them. Um, just a more healthy pig when it came to to birthing. So uh, so I've learned a lot from that. And um, yeah, that's that's something where and I'll, I'll get to that here at the end. We talk about how that's affected our change in the direction we want to go. Uh, moving forward in 2020. So uh, as far as our setup goes, you know, the challenge in our property, of course, is the topography. But, you know, there's pros and cons. I don't have the luxury of doing a rotational pasture system that makes sense. I mean, I, you, you see some of these plans out where people are using the wagon wheel method or, or these paddock systems that, that you know, are nice and square and you've got a common area in the center that's your feed and your water source and and or you know when you go to Polyface Farms, you see how Salatin has his 
his paddock set up with a center alley and uh, so he just moves them around i think he has 12 to 14 paddocks and he just moves them around no problem and then has a center road where he can come load and and, and drive right up if he needs to well his land even though it's in a, a mountain area his land lays so well that he can he can do that in my situation i've taken the stream and used it as a dividing line so i've got our south what i call our south pasture and our north pasture and altogether about four or five acres uh, that changes a little bit uh, as we move some things around and, and try to build infrastructure but kind of having that split uh, in half so you know maybe two and a half acres per or maybe uh, south pasture maybe a little bigger than the north pasture and just rotating back and forth on those two is what we did a lot of it's forested some of it's clear we're actually trying to clear as we go in fact that's kind of the joke that i say uh, our valley runs east west so my pigs are my pioneers they are to head west young man and, and clear land so as we move uh, expand our pastures we're expanding on that westward side and allowing pigs access to more forest area or um, i'll clear an area then move the pigs into that area doing a good job of course clearing out the underbrush finding all the forage um, they love poison ivy they love green briar um, they love all those small saplings uh, really really tear into that and that's the thing i've noticed too with my genetics going with uh, these you know, more production type pigs the instead of your know, heritage breed some that are more geared toward pasture these pigs definitely are are harder on our pasture um, they do a lot of rooting so i have to have to control that keep them out of certain areas uh, block off areas that they're just wailing on too much or come in with you know with a tractor and and try to mitigate some of the damage they've done so that's that's a bit of an issue so right now we do have a rotational process it's just trying to figure out how to bust up those paddocks appropriately with the topography we have i mean there's definitely parts on our on our mountainside where it's everything you can do to walk up the side of it much less you know uh set fence or you know try to drive a piece of equipment up to deliver feed so there's um, there's some method to our madness we let our pastures actually be defined by the benches and by the roads that I've cut um, that was the beauty of having the property timbered back in 2000 selectively is a, a nice road system cut throughout the property so I can get almost anywhere on my property with a side-by-side -side or a tractor not necessarily taking my pickup truck up there but I can get uh, anywhere on the property with uh, the either side by side of the tractor so it gives me access it's just you know the convenience of you really want to have your fence going alongside a road not down the side of a almost a vertical you know 70 degree angle uh, slope that kind of makes things a little tough but you know there's times that we have to have that the creek of course provided water i do now have impoundments small impoundments in various areas that's the beauty of west virginia we get tons of water so there's never really an issue when it comes to water fencing process i'd mentioned this earlier um, and that's what attracted me when, when listening to the chicken thistle uh, podcast attracted me about pigs it's it's like well you know a strand of electric will keep a pig at bay and since we're so rural and i don't have local neighbors to worry about that's what i started out with i literally went around again there's all kinds of things i learned from this but literally went around sticking in t-post step-in posts even you know splitting my own uh, wooden fence posts to set in the pasture and putting insulator you know putting one insulator about you know, eight inches off the ground and, and stringing one uh, strand of 17 gauge wire all the way around so i'm like yeah bang five acres i got that done in a in a um, you know, weekend 
uh, or you know, a week's worth of work putting all that stuff together and thought, this is a piece of cake. Buy a simple fence charger down here at Tractor Supply, I'm good to go. Obviously, things have evolved since then, but still, to some degree, that that's true. The, the fencing is much, much cheaper than if I was doing all that in woven wire or I was putting you know, five-strand high tinsel to, to keep a, a cowl in. Since then, I've, I've evolved away from the uh, 17 gauge because we have so many white-tailed deer in our area. They, when they blast through the fence, um, they don't jump it. They just go through it, and it, it just severs the fence. So there's so many places where it's broken. I've noticed if I go up to 14 gauge, uh, when the deer go through it, they don't sever the fence itself. They usually blow an insulator apart or you know, tear it away from, uh, knock a T-post over or something like that. So th that's a little easier to repair than uh, having all these different um, splices that you got to fix in your wire. So that's that's kind of our layout, electric fence, uh, two main paddocks as we move west, as we clear more land. Our, our, our ideal plan is go further west, move the pigs further and further away from the front of the property. They go up the valley, and then as I cleared land, we're trying to do more of a silvopasture type thing. So leaving a lot of the protein-producing trees, you know, the oaks, the hickories, the walnuts, the beech, uh, stuff that produces great protein, but thin out some of the scrub stuff or even thin out some of those uh, key species so that there's enough sunlight uh, to be able to get good pasture grass growing. And, and I really like what we've got put together so far. It's just you know, one guy with a chainsaw uh, on 100 acres. Yeah, it's, I couldn't cut down these trees in two lifetimes. So just seeing how that goes. I, I want to refrain from bringing in a piece of heavy equipment and ripping through the land. Erosion, uh, treetops, all those type of things you know, have to be dealt with. So there's a pro and con to all of that. But that's our game plan. Pigs go west, and then maybe we bring in some, some ruminants. We're really looking at highland cattle maybe in 20, into 2020, beginning of 2021, to, uh, to accentuate what's going on at the farm. So, you know, I talked about um, our income and how we you know, sold holes and halves and then eventually went to cuts. And, you know, this is something that I'd stick a pen in and, and do a whole other uh, uh, podcast discussion about Maybe it's the guess, maybe it's me pontificating and, and, and sharing experiences uh, from others. But um, it was really one of those deals where I wanted the pig business to be profitable. It, it, for me to do this on a scale larger than just raising a couple hogs for myself, uh, for the family, uh, if I was going to breed and, and have the opportunity to have large litters, you know, and to me a large litter is anything over you know, 10 pigs per sow uh, on the property then I needed to have an income stream. I didn't want to get stuck with all these pigs and then turn around and be selling piglets, you know, flooding the market with uh, wean piglets that you see sometimes for $25 or $30 because somebody's just trying to get rid of them. I wanted to have a customer base established that I could sell a finished product. To me, that's the real value. When you value add something to the point that you've got a finished product that has higher dollar value to it. So worked really hard building a customer list, uh, establishing that samples, uh, going to different types of sales, uh, delivery systems that we put in place, uh, packets, bundles, all those type of things. So uh, got to where that it became very profitable for us. In fact, I would, at the end of the year, if, if we're doing a, a large chunk of holes and halves, man, you, you, you get flush with cash at that point. And um, if that cash had carried you through from last year, then, then you're, you're net positive. So that helped us reinvest back into the farm, uh, whether it was adding a piece of equipment, uh, upgrading some things. Uh, all of that came into play very handy. 
I do confess, one year it actually helped go, you know, have a nice vacation. So that's what I always tell the boys when they're grumbling and complaining about being out knee deep in mud. It's like, remember, these pigs sent us to this place one year on vacation. So keep that in mind. So in, income was key for us. Um, I, to me, it's not you know, the primary cornerstone of why we do pigs, uh, but uh, to me, it has to be profitable. It has to at least cover its costs, or I'm just going to go get feeder pigs in the spring and raise them out and butcher them um, you know, just for our personal consumption. I really like, I enjoy breeding. Um, I haven't been that good at it here lately. Uh, if you guys watch the channel, you, you'll see all of those uh, videos discussing that. Um, so I've been a little discouraged there, uh, but really enjoy the breeding of it. To me, that's that's the neat thing is looking at the genetics, looking at what you can produce, looking at what what comes out, what what hits the ground, and what's viable. And there's nothing more fun than piglets. You know, piglet season, man. That's that's when that's when you have a really good time and you're enjoying that, and that's when all your friends want to come out because everybody wants to see piglets. So you know, all those things that go along with that. So. Looking forward at Red Toolhouse, our, our plan in the future, um, in fact, at the point of recording this, uh, our plans are going to shift gears, um, are, are really going to go into effect here at the end of this week. So you guys have heard on the podcast before, David Crafton from Six Oaks Farms, he is bringing us uh, some pigs. Uh, in fact, at the end of this week of recording this, we should be receiving 14 pigs from his uh, genetic line. And what we're getting is one boar. Yep, that's right. I'm going boar. So we're going to try a boar. And he's going to be young. He's not going to be pitching yet. Um, so he's, uh, he's not going to be ready to hit the ground. Uh, but he's getting a boar, and we're getting 13 other uh, – actually, we're 14 pigs total, one boar. Uh, David selected at least three gilts that, uh, that are his level of confirmation. He said, he, these are the three you'd want to breed. He said, and then there's some intermediate guilt you may want to look at. But what I can, you know, what my plan is to hold a boar and three gilts for breeding, and then that leaves us ten to finish this year because I didn't have any piglets um, in a farrowing this year. Uh, so I, yeah, I've, my customers have been waiting too long. I'm afraid of losing some of my customer base because I haven't been able to have any pork products. So we we have taken all of our sows except for Merida, and we sent them off to processing. So we, we kind of retired that entire genetic line. Uh, the reason why we kept Merida is, quite frankly, she wouldn't get in the trailer. Um, she had a bad experience with trailers. She's smart enough. She knows. Uh, so she's hanging out on the farm right now. She will be um, she will be on the processing list, and it will probably be a self-processing at Red Tool House. Um, we'll, we'll probably do that, and that's, that's again, a whole other discussion. Uh, but actually, as I'm thinking, I kind of like the idea of keeping her here just when we introduce these new pigs, simply because I'm hoping that as an alpha, as a large 600-pound sow, hopefully she doesn't knock anybody around and kill anybody, but my plan is that hopefully she will kind of show them. Um, you know, my fear is these pigs have been trained in electric from David's farm, but obviously they, they're new to my farm, and I'm not used to bringing in animals from outside. So um, I've spent all the last couple of weeks, you know, tuning up our fence. You know, I've taken things for granted. Uh, even when fence is down, our pigs don't leave, all those type of things. So I've gone back and reinforced, redone uh, a bunch of fence, and I really want it to be as secure as possible. But I'm hoping that they will, they will see Merida's example. Hey, here's where we go to sleep. Here's where we go to eat. Here's how we do this. 
and uh, and not just say, oh, look, a huge valley full of mast. We're just going to hit the we're just going to hit the hillside. So that's kind of my my self justification as to why Merida wasn't on the trailer. Uh, so I'm hoping that's going to work out to our advantage and not to our disadvantage. We'll share that. So we'll get into more details as we see how that goes. Again, it's um, as, as Granddad always taught me, so, you know, don't catch your chickens before they hatch. So I'm not going to put too much into um, all these big plans until, you know, David's pigs are on my farm. Uh, but really like working with him, really like his attitude, really like his approach to farming when it comes to pigs. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how his pigs can flourish on our, on our farm. So, you know, seeing that, so in 2020, looking at, you know, A, I'm new to a boar, so I've got to figure out how I'm going to manage that and, and how that comes into play. Um, and then you're getting a breeding schedule figured out. All of those things um, obviously are going to be new for us. So I almost feel like I'm starting over. Um, I've got the experiences that I have, but there's going to be a whole lot of new experiences that I'm going to have to uh, to navigate. So it's going to be interesting. And like I said, we'll document we'll document that on the channel, but I'll also come back and do updates as we do the podcast in the future, Lord willing. So looking past 2020, our, our plans are really just... I'd like to get into a groove of of producing good quality pork in in holes and halves and cuts, and uh, utilizing the genetic line that David sent to to just breed good quality stuff. There may you know may sell a, a wean piglet from time to time here or there, depending on how these litters do. Uh, really not the top of my list, but just really looking at producing a good quality item. Um, hoping that these uh, more pastured-based pigs will be easier on on the on the pasture system, still do some good forage, still do some clearing that we need them to do, uh, but just be a, a more well-rounded pig. So really looking forward to that. Um, I don't know that I would ever say that my uh, my goal would be for the pastured pig operation to to be as large as you know some of the people that we've interviewed. And that becomes a primary you know, source of income. That That is the job of Red Tool House and, and Kelly and I. Uh, I don't know that it's where I want to go. I, I really like everything that I do. I, you know, I love doing my day job. I, I love helping people market. Uh, I love raising pigs, but I also want to raise some of these other animals and, and do more there. Um, there's things not even related to pig farming that we want to do with our property. Um, you know, we... We're, we're, we're big believers. Um, uh, we're, we're Christian. We're, we have a Christian faith that we follow. And I, I want to take a good chunk of my property and invest in building a marriage retreat. So, um, you know, people that are marriages are struggling, um, they can come spend some time on this retreat and hopefully um, be able to heal from whatever is ailing them or just simply get some time away. We, we live in a dead zone. There's no cell service. There's no Internet. There's nothing out there. Uh, so it becomes a nice way to unplug, but we're still only 30 minutes from the capital of our city, of our, of our state. So there's stuff we want to do there. And again, it has nothing to do with pig farming. Uh, but that's, that's some of the influences that say, well, I don't want to be a full-time pig farmer. Uh, I do love pigs. I enjoy them thoroughly. To me, they're the, the, the most fun farm animal that I've experienced so far. But they are not going to be my primary focus or my sole focus of what goes on on our property. So as we grow, I don't know that I'll be looking to do litters larger or, or look at having herds larger than 30, 30 pigs. You know, again, maybe if sales take off like crazy, then, then maybe we'll address that. But to me, 30 and under is, is a really good number for us and allows me to do the other things that I want to do. Well, you know, the, the closing question is funny. I, yeah, I'm looking at my list here. I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of my, uh, 
my uh, diatribe, uh, my discussion of, of what we've got going on. And I always ask everyone this closing question about, you know, what's the best experience or my favorite part of raising pigs on pasture? So I guess it's fair for me to ask myself that. To me, the, the best part of raising pigs is really the whole nine yards. I mean, everything. Uh, now, granted, you know, when I go out and discover there's been a farrowing issue or a pig's gotten crushed or a pig didn't settle, that's a drag. Or you know, just just those things, you know, when you have bad days, it is what it is. But, man, I, I just love every aspect of it. I enjoy start to finish. Uh, piglets on the farm are really a blast. I, I enjoy just sitting watching the piglets play. I mean, I can recount hours of just sitting in the barn watching these, these little turkeys run around. They're just hilarious. All the way up to, you know, these larger sows, just working with them, their personalities. Uh, yeah, they follow me here, follow me there. Um, yeah, just, uh, they have personalities they're, they, I think they have more personalities than most dogs, definitely have personalities better than most people. Um, but just a, a really neat animal to watch. Uh, they have value on our property, not only in what they produce in their death, but in, uh, the, the production that they do while they're there, keeping areas clear, um, cleaning up the, the, the forest area for us. Um, you're producing soil as they turn their manure and, and these things into this red clay that we have and and we start to see soil building there so I really enjoy every aspect of it and of course there's nothing more satisfying than sitting down at dinner and having a, a pork chop or a breakfast having a, a nice piece of bacon or sausage and think this is something that came from my farm this is something that my hands had a hand in uh, producing and it just gives me a better respect for it. You know, I, I, I don't like to see any of that go to waste. Um, we use every inch of stuff. I, I don't like my, my boys, you know, having a, a piece of pork left on their plate. Say, son, you know how hard it was for us to raise that, you know, eat that. So that's what I like about raising pigs on pasture. It's just the entire process. You know, even the hard days, it's part of it. it. It makes you appreciate the good days. Well, I hope that was... Um, Somewhat entertaining, I realize that I've gone as long as I go when I interview people. It just shows you that I can talk and there's never been an issue with me not having something to say. <laughs> My wife would agree with that too. So if you want to know more about our farm, uh, then you can go to redtoolhouse.com. We do have our website there. That's also where you know uh, the Pastured Pig Podcast link is, and, and I have those two things integrated right now. At some point, we may look at splitting that out um, and having a standalone website for the podcast. Uh, not not a big priority for me right now. Uh, feel free to comment, send me a message if you think uh, that should be something I need to do. But uh, right now, I think uh, all living together is fine. But you can find details about our, our farm, a little bit of history there. And of course, you can if you really want to get deep in the weeds with us, our YouTube channel, I think we're about 380 videos now. Again, not all related to, to pig farming. It's more of our broader homesteading scope. Uh, but there is a boatload of content out there, if you so dare. Check that out. We have a Facebook page, Red Tool House on Facebook, Red Tool House on Instagram. Uh, so you can check us out there. We try to keep those things pretty current. Well, this is a part where I bid you adieu. And I uh, just really appreciate everybody that listens to the podcast. It's really fun meeting new people and talking to people. I learned so much from, from you all. Uh, we've got some interviews coming up where we're going to get a little more topical based. Uh, but I still want to talk to you, those that are just starting out or just want to share their experiences with uh, raising pigs on pasture, whether it's at a professional level, a big production level, or you know, homesteading level just to, to raise enough food for yourself. 
Well, I pray everyone has a great week. You get to spend some quality time out in the pasture with your pigs. All right, take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com. 